0: 1400 years ago, a man and his family found themselves on the plains of Mesopotamia, confronted by an army. A hundred or so men, women and children against 3 to 30,000 soldiers sent on behalf of the ruling Caliph. Suffice to say, what ensued was a bloodbath. 1400 years later, almost no city across the world does not mourn the death of that man and his family. 1.8 billion people revere his stand and 300 million of those people go a step further basing their actions and principles around that man and his family. On the 20th of Safar, a month of the Islamic calendar 20 to 30 million people flock to his grave in order to pay remembrance consistently the largest peaceful gathering year on year and it's only getting bigger the caliph who ordered his death his army the leaders of that army nowhere to be heard or seen this is the tale of hussein the son of ali and the grandson of the holy prophet a tale known by heart in many shia circles but often underappreciated amongst the wider Muslim community and unknown to many across the world. This is a tale of a man and his stand against injustice, against oppression and against hate. It's a tale which goes beyond time. This message was universal and goes beyond person because it's a message for all persons of all faiths and none. It's also a tale that goes beyond space because it occupies the hearts of people from all corners of the earth. Over the next few weeks, I hope to tell you this story piece by piece. Many of you may already be aware of his journey, and many of you may not. Now, I'm no expert, but I hope I can do it some justice and bring some small light into the magnanimity of this man. The Living Martyr. Welcome back to The Lyspective, after what seems and is an incredibly long hiatus. I could lie and say I was busy saving the world, or working on new projects, or just anything of productivity. But the truth is I had switched rotations in my job and I was so caught up in work and adjusting to my new rotor that I lost track of where I was. And by the time I found stability, it was already four months into 2020 amidst a global pandemic. Anyways, you're not here to listen to my life story and I wish I could say I wonder if you've missed me. But I don't think you have. Well, I'm back to reclaim your attention and I promise I'm not going to go away. Most of the next few episodes in this series have already been recorded, any corruption or files permitting, so I do not envisage any delay in the remaining schedule of this series. I also do not want my delay in finishing it to take away from the message of the tale. In preparation for this episode, and for those beyond, I gave my first four a re-listen, something I'd recommend all of you to do so that any details aren't missed. I realised after I had heard how awkward my first episode sounded... ...that the narrative itself has so many different facets... ...and talking about it has been great so far... ...but soon I'm going to have to decide through which channel I channel my thoughts... ...through which avenue I seek to relay the story and how I choose to do it... ...primarily because it's a lot to take in for you, the listener... ...and without a focus I feel it may get quite muddy. As such, if you find yourself venturing into those waters... Step back and take a look at this tale through simply two lenses, the first being the historical, the objective tale of what transpired, as we have so often been discussing through the main body of our episodes, and secondly, what message the historical tale served to show. The next two episodes will set up the former very nicely, from which we will expand into discussions regarding the latter. Now obviously before I continue, I am legally required to plug my social media accounts. Thankfully for you, it's the same across the board, on Instagram, Facebook and Gmail. Just search for The Lispective. Full details are at the end of each podcast, so please do get in contact with me regarding any questions, concerns, critique, any feedback. Even if you're just gaining anything from this, so I don't feel like a loner. I'm just kidding. But also, I'm not just kidding. (laughs) Now, enough of the boring stuff, it's been too long and it's time we return our attention to the story of Hussein, peace be upon him, and his progeny, the living martyr. Let's have a super quick recap so we're all on the same page. I do recommend giving the first four episodes a go, however, if you have the time. You can always come back to this one later. It's not going anywhere. After the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him and his progeny, Islam found itself, if you follow a certain narrative, under the, under the leadership of the first caliph, then the second caliph, then the third, then the fourth, then the fifth, and then finally the sixth. History, however, often proves to be much more complex than it lets on. Immediately after the Prophet's passing, many Muslims thought the Caliphate should have been given to Ali, his son-in-law, his cousin, and his right-hand man who had grown up in the house of the Holy Prophet. These Muslims would be revered to as the followers of Ali, the Shia, and from the offspring of Ali came a son named Husayn. Now 50 years after the passing of the Prophet, Husayn found himself in a situation where the Caliphate was wrongly being transferred to Yazid. The sixth caliph, if we're, if we're following the timeline, a despotic, immoral ruler who had no consideration for Islam and the principles it upheld. Imam Hussein, peace be upon him and his progeny, could not allow the state his grandfather had set up 50 years ago to be slain by Yazid, and this stance, coupled with the Yazid's desire to separate Hussein's head from his body, led him to leave his home from modern day Saudi Arabia and travel east towards Kufa a city in modern-day Iraq where seemingly he had support. The support, however, dissipated quicker than a British summer, but Hussein had already set out on his journey. Apprehended by Yazid's men before he could even reach Gufa, he and his family and friends, totalling around 72, including women, children and babies, were shepherded away from Kufa to another place in modern-day Iraq, arriving there on the 2nd of Muharram, Muharram being the first month in the Islamic calendar year. This place was called Karbala, and Hussein and his family would reach their eventual destiny on the 10th of Muharram, eight days away. This begs the question, however, what exactly occurred during those eight days? And this is where we pick up our tale. Hur. Was the commander of the army who had intercepted Imam Hussein, peace be upon him and his progeny, on his journey to Kufa, and had brought him to Karbala? He had acted on the commandments of Ibn Ziyad, the governor of Kufa, under the Caliphate of Yazid. Ibn Ziyad, however, gave no slack, and upon learning that Hussein had been had been stopped in Karbala, and Horus' army had surrounded him and his accomplices, sent further military units to shore up his position. Perhaps he feared the six-month-old son of the 55-year-old man who travelled there with his women and children would come together to defeat the thousands already there. The extra support came with the appointment of Umar ibn Sa'd, Umar the son of Saad, as a commander of the army that stood against Hussein some sources say he came with 4 to 20000 extra soldiers and it was clear the threat hussein and his ideological stance posed on yazid and his leadership now omar ibn saad is an interesting character he certainly popped up in islamic history prior to his pivotal role in karbala but it is in karbala where he would make his mark his role actually itself was foreshadowed with a narration that states when he met as a young boy, Imam Ali, the father of Hussein, Imam Ali said, Woe be to you, O son of Sa'ad, what would be your state at the moment when you will be standing between paradise and hell, and you shall choose the hell? But what itself led to Umar's appointment? How did those eight days transpire? Well, the tale goes that once Hussein and his caravan were detained in Karbala. He gathered his people. Hussein. Hussein gathered his people together and gave them the reality of what was going on. He gave them the harsh truth of how the Umayyads had harmed them, and that to quote, people are slaves of this world. The religion is just what they say. They use it as long as it provides them with their living. When they are tested, the true religious people are few. His stance even then, was clear, and he knew that the stance was not simply one for that time, but rather a stance to reverberate through history. He could easily have focused his speech and actions on the enemies standing across from him, but to Hussein the bigger picture was important to note. He states, You see the truth is not acted upon, and the wrong is not prevented. And he says, Indeed, I do not see death as but happiness. And life with unjust people as nothing but grief. Those who remained with him through his journey were loyal ones. Zuhair, the same man who was so anti-Hussein who we discussed in the previous episode, stood up and he gave his allegiance to Hussein. Others followed suit, proclaiming the same, stating that whoever betrays you betrays no one but himself. You go wherever you go, we will be with you, whatever you face, east or west. Hussein had the foresight to procure the land he was captive on, telling the people who lived in that area that the property remained theirs, so long as they lead those who want to visit his grave in the future to it. Hussein knew that this was the end of his line. Hur, meanwhile, had written to Ibn Ziyad, the governor of Kufa, giving him an update. Ibn Ziyad responded with a letter stating, the leader of the faithful, Yazid, has written and ordered me not to sleep or be full with drink until I send you to your lord, or you accept my rule and the rule of Yazid. When Hussein read this letter, he let it fall to the ground, and he said, "People who want to please anyone but God will not be successful." And when they asked Hussein for a response to Ibn Ziyad, he says he has no reply from me, because the punishment of God is certain from Him. Now, God-fearing people usually, by definition, fear God. God-fearing people are usually ones with a clear moral compass and live their lives ethically and by principles, Hussein being the forefront example here. Religion and the idea of fearing God has almost completely different perceptions today than they did all those centuries ago, but that is not an indictment on religion itself, as many would have you believe. When followed as supposed to, religion has the scope to be a beautiful thing. Hussein is a great example of that, and Yazid Ibn Ziyad and Umar ibn Sa'ad are the opposite. All claim in this example to be God-fearing men, but only one actually is. Umar ibn Sa'ad is actually an interesting example of wavering morals. Upon hearing Hussein's reply, Ibn Ziyad goes to Umar ibn Sa'ad and he says to Umar that he will appoint him as a governor of a Persian city should he kill Hussein. Omar took time to consult some of his friends, all of whom warned him not to go should he even become the governor of the whole world for it. Umar clearly had thought perhaps he should think twice about waging war with the Prophet's grandson. He approached Ibn Ziyad and told him he's unwilling to fight Hussein. And he even actually offered Ibn Ziyad a whole list of alternative people who could go and fight. Ultimately, however, he didn't want to miss out on the chance to become governor of this Persian city. So he gathered his men and departed for Karbala. Omar, in this instance showed he was a man of this world, Hussein being a man for the hereafter. It was clear that the enemy were not going to leave Hussein alone. Allegiance would be extracted from him for the deviant Yazid. Hur and his army, Omar ibn Sa'ad and his army, both surrounding Hussein and his family and friends. But this was not enough. Ibn Ziyad conveys a message to the people of Kufa, telling them about how great Yazid is, how he honours people and that he'd increase the salaries of the Kufan X-fold should they go out to fight Husayn. Remember, the Kufans were the people who had called for Husayn, who stood behind his cousin Muslim in prayer. Commanders left for Karbala with their troops upon hearing Ibn Ziyad's speech one commander left with 2,000, one commander left with 4,000, one commander left with 1,000 and so on and so forth and then, until the total, around the 6th of Muharram, four days after they were stationed and four days before their demise was around 30,000 troops one such person with an army of 4,000 was shimr ibn Diljoshan shimr is an incredibly important character in this tale as we'll come to know very soon. But it's important to note that Shimmer was at one point a companion of Ali Hussein's father. History actually narrates that there was a battle that Ali had fought and ultimately had won during his caliphate. His son Hussein was walking by the captives until he was stopped by one captive with ropes around his hand. The captive looked towards him and states, Hussein, I beg you, please remove this rope from around my hands. The rope is causing nervousness in me. Please remove it. Hussein went back to his father and asked him for a favour. He pointed towards the man and asked permission from his father to remove it. His father looked at him and Ali asks why he wanted to answer this man's plea, to which Hussein replies, Oh my father, when someone asks through me, how can I reject? I don't want this person to be embarrassed. The man in question? The prisoner? None other than shimr the same man who rode towards Karbala with 4,000 soldiers intent on killing the man who showed him mercy. On the 6th of Muharram, Omar maneuvered his soldiers in such a way that blocked the Hussein and his family and followers from accessing the water from the river Euphrates. The 55-year-old man, his women and his small children all cut off from the water in this desert where water was the only thing that could keep you going. Hussein, remember, had offered Hor and his soldiers water from his supplies when he encountered them. The same enemy now stood in front of him, unwilling to show the same respect. The water wasn't far, it was close enough to actually see and to smell, but I don't know if that makes this part of the tale better or worse. Suffice to say that the tongues of Hussein's camps quickly became dry and the throats became burning. An issue for the adults, let alone the children and the six-month-old baby. The enemy, however, continued to deny them of this privilege. Some may say a right. On the 8th of Muharram, the Imam and Umar had some dialogue. The Imam reminded Umar of his Islamic duties, asking asking him if he does not fear God. And Umar gave excuse after excuse about why he found himself opposing the Imam that he feared for his life, his village, his children, etc. Umar, it seems, understood the importance of the man to whom he was talking and tried to see what he could do. And perhaps history could have actually been different had Shimr not intervened. shimr spoke to Ibn Ziyad and told him, if you do not get him now, him being Hussein, if you do not get him now, you will not be able to get him again. He is weak and you are now strong. Ibn Ziyad heeded Shimr's counsel and sent a letter to Umar, telling him to have Hussein accept his rule or to attack them, kill them, and cut off their heads, feet, noses, and other parts. He goes on to say that if Hussein is killed, march the horses on his chest and his back. I do not think that would hurt him after death. It is clear to see the effect and the influence Shimr had on Ibn Ziyad as well as the proceedings of. What happened in Karbala? Omar, upon hearing this, decided to follow Ibn Ziyad's command. Now history will ask whether he should have followed his wavering instincts and left the man of God alone. Whether he should have read that letter from Ibn Ziyad and let Shimr lead the army and retire away, or better yet, fight with Hussein. Ultimately, however, history will tell us that he chose to fight against Hussein. I think it must be becoming clear that Shimmer was quite a devious gentleman, an aggressive man, rather. His deviancy knew no bounds, and his presence in Karbala led him to try his hand at breaking apart Hussein's camp from the inside. Now, Shimmer was related to Hussein's half brother, if you'll remember from the previous episode, Abbas, on his mother's side, and as such, he called out towards Hussein's camp, saying, Where are the children of our sister? Referring to Abbas. And he offered them clemency should they go to Yazid's side. Now Abbas calls out, God curse you and your clemency. You give us clemency and you do not give clemency to the grandson of the Prophet of God? It must also be noted that Abbas did not even want to respond to shimr his distant cousin. It was Hussein who suggested he should, for he is his relative. Come the night of the 9th of Muharram. Omar ordered his army to attack Hussein's camp at once. Some of Hussein's camp, including Zuhair, went to speak to the army. Zuhair informing them that God knew he did not invite Hussein, nor did he write him a letter, nor did he promise anything. But once he saw Hussein and recognized him and knew who his enemy was, he decided to fight for Hussein. It is this appreciation of truth and justice that so often lacks in our world on a micro and macro scale. Muslims spend their life failing to recognise the magnanimity of Hussein and his tale because they see it as a sheer thing. They fail to capture the essence of what Zuhair did, which is to see past what you grow up hearing, and rather open your eyes to the truth. This truth is what allows so many non-Muslims around the world to honour and respect the message of Hussein, what allows Christian populaces in Lebanon and Hindu populaces in India, amongst others, to revere the man and his fight. Now, Abbas comes back to the enemy on the 9th of Muharram with a message from Imam Hussein, peace be upon him, and his progeny. And the message is, leave us for one night. So that what? So that they may seek to disappear into the ether? So that they may seek to hold out for more soldiers? No. Abbas says, leave us for one night, so that they may pray to their Lord and recite the Holy Quran, God's own scripture. Now the imam gathers his followers and he gives them a sermon. In this sermon he speaks about how he praises God, about how he knew his time had come and tomorrow was the decisive day with the enemy. He was the one they wanted so he gave his followers the opportunity there and then to pack their stuff and leave, scatter into the villages and that after his death they would not come for any of them. No one however left him. Hussein then turned to one of his companions, whose father had died, and gave him the opportunity to leave, to which he responded, life after you is the worst life. They continued to respond with valour and conviction, one of them stating, if I do not have a sword, I will throw rocks on them until I die with you. And another stating, by God, if I die and come back to life, and if I am burned and come back to life again 70 times, I will not leave you until I die for you. Zuhair, that same man who opposed Imam Hussein, stated he want to be killed one thousand times to protect Imam Hussein. This was the respect the followers had for Hussein, and by extrapolation Hussein's grandfather, Muhammad, peace be upon him and his progeny, the religion the Prophet Muhammad brought down, as well as from whom it came, God. Hussein embodied the message of the holy book, the blood of justice coursed through his veins and his palm in his heart, rather pumped the Sunnah of his grandfather. It was wholly in the enemy's interest to stop Hussein from living, and entirely in the interest of his followers to stand by Hussein whilst they try. Many supplications now have the line May my mother and father be ransomed for you, O Hussein. Many prayers often contain requests that we have no sadness in our lives, please God Except for the sadness of Hussein's tale, and many even yearn for the chance to have fought for Hussein on the eventful day 1,400 years ago, no different to how his supporters back then acted. The only difference being that back then, there were a handful of supporters, and on paper, Hussein and his message would have ended completely with his death. Now, however, there are hundreds of millions worldwide who chant his name and honour his sacrifice by its remembrance and by following his message. The night of the ninth was spent in deep prayer. Sources say that it sounded as if there were bees in Hussein's tent from the constant whisper of prayer, of prayer through the night. Hussein even recited a poem which went, "O oh life, how many friends you have in the morning that you leave in the evening. Some are dead. Some are alone and no one is replaced. Everything is up to God, only he remains forever. Hussein's followers remained loyal to him throughout this period, all of them wanting to die on the battlefield first for Hussein. Hussein himself found himself asleep just before dawn and when he awoke on the morning of the 10th of Muharram, his words were piercing and foreshadowed how the next few hours would transpire. Hours that we will discuss properly in the next episode. The climax of what we have been leading up towards. The 10th of Muharram. Ashura. The day in which Islamic history would change irreparably and the day for which Muslims still mourn until now. Hussein awoke and said, I saw my grandfather in my dream. And he said, you are the martyr of this nation and tomorrow You will be with me. You're more than welcome to contact me. uh, And even if you don't want to contact me, please do follow me on my social media accounts. So my Instagram, which is perhaps where it would be best to find updates, is at Lispective. My Twitter is at Lispective. And you can find this podcast on Buzzsprout if you search the Lispective on Spotify again if you search for the Lispective and I can confirm that we are now on iTunes so if you search for the Lispective on iTunes you can find this podcast if you'd like to email me you're more than welcome to at Lispective at gmail.com leaves me to just credit my audio as I did last time and that I'd like to credit as Loopster, Dark Times and The Andreas Theme, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0, HTTP, http, colon, forward slash, forward slash, creativecommons.org, forward slash, licenses, forward slash, by, forward slash, 3.0, forward slash.